And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your applause. Shia. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm a writer for Grantland.com and on the other line, he only cops heroin at the finest Silver Lake Farmer's Market. It's Andy Greenwald! Yeah! First time listeners, Andy does not cop heroin. That was a joke about Fear the Walking Dead. But I am a locavore when it comes to plums (laughs) and drugs. So (laughs) whatever you got. Farm to table, son. That's right. (laughs) Farm to nostril, are all you familiar, the best. Are you familiar with our dining style here? It's family, it's it's shared plates, so family me, style. You know what, let me go ahead and explain our menu to you. <laughs> what we do is we cook food in the kitchen. Yeah, and then I course it out for you. I'll course yeah. it out for you. You know what, we're going to course it out for our listeners. <laughs> we had a week off, sort of, we did Mr. Robot last week, but now I'm back, back from vacation, tan, rested, not at all ready. But we're going <laughs> to course it out over some uh, culture for everybody. We're going to talk about Fear the Walking Dead, which premiered last night. We'll talk a little yep. bit about Show Me a Hero, although I think we're going to dive deeper into that next week. Yep. Uh, and then we were going to touch on uh, the great Quentin Tarantino interview in New York Magazine conducted by our buddy I, Lane Brown. I kind of like our new role as cultural uh, interview We're just uh, shepherds. Consultants. We're shepherds. We talk about this stuff. Yeah. But yeah, sorry, I cut you off before we got to the main course. And if you're watching on video, you see Andy is wearing the yes. t-shirt of a new band, I'm a Jewish band, called Beach Slang, which we have both fallen in love with over the last couple of weeks. So we were going to talk a little it's bit the about them. They have need. an album coming out Friday, I think, right? It's not coming out until October. Coming out October. Yeah, yeah, but they, there is some music available yeah, now. Yeah, you can hear There's plenty a... of stuff to listen to. So anyway, Andy. Hey, buddy. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Fear the Walking Dead. Yeah, big news, big spinoff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Set in Los Angeles, starring Kim Dickens and Cliff Curtis, two very good people. Cliff Curtis, uh, longtime fans of things that I'm fans of, <laughs> know <mean> that <laughs> I really think Cliff Curtis is yeah. dope in Sunshine. Yeah, that's your call on him. Yeah. He's, he's been in a lot of movies, yeah, but that's but where like, you like if, him Because like, you know how when you did Rami Malek and you were like, you've been in The Master and The Pacific, and he was like, yeah. and a lot of other garbage. <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah. that's the same thing. If I interviewed Cliff Curtis, I'd be like, tell me about Sunshine, man. And what, what have you, you been doing since then? <laughs> you wouldn't throw it back to like Once We're Warriors? <laughs> oh, I guess that was pretty, that was pretty swell. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty great not seeing a lot of things because then you can basically assume that every working actor is a reclusive genius. Yeah, who, you know, only, who only makes like, one thing a decade. Like, and everyone is Crispin Glover. They're only, they've only done four things. <laughs> <laughs> They're just so choosy. Um, it's terrific. So, okay, well, so here's the thing. You said three things that had me in. You said it's set in Los Angeles. I like that. You said Kim Dickens, whom we love from Friday Night Lights and Deadwood. Uh, and you said Cliff Curtis, who, by the way, is terrific in Sunshine. Yeah, he's great in Sunshine. Um, it's a good start. And so this is really interesting because the thing about The Walking Dead, and I've written this before, and we've probably talked about it before, before we just gave up talking about it, is that uh, it's the biggest show on TV. Mm-hmm. So it almost doesn't need to be good. Every time it makes a really smart choice, it's worth noting, you know, and I think that this, the current showrunner, Scott Gimple, has mostly turned it around. But it doesn't have to be good. So this is sort of an incredible position of strength to launch a spinoff from because it's going to get good ratings. Right. It's pretty much a given because it has zombies in it. You also have enormous freedom because you can do just about anything because it has zombies in it. And they also had five seasons now to think about what wasn't working on the mothership and how to fix it. So sure. I wrote about this last week. You, Chris Ryan, longtime zombie fan, especially the zombies in the Danny Boyle film Sunshine. <laughs> what did you think of this? Uh, I appreciated the fact that, you know, a lot of the characters on The Walking Dead for all their pluses and minuses you can't really shake the idea that they all feel like old testament bible characters 
Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it is I with my bow and arrow, and I will search for the, the countryside for thee. You know what I mean? It's, like, very, like, all the stories are very, they just feel very staid, even if it's supposed to be this thing set in the near near future. Uh, so I appreciated the fact that the Fear of the Walking Dead, that Fear of the Walking Dead started with just, like, a very recognizable group of people. You know, yes. it wasn't people growing beards or going to farms. You know what I mean? It wasn't. There was no <laughs> yeah. like it's lots of that. sisters. There were no communities of like weird like cults. It's just like you know uh, a, a like version it, it of Los Angeles that I live in. Your neighborhood, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was like an interesting. Like it was. It was funny. I was like, this is this is funny how they tried to take Modern Family, the sitcom, and apply it to The Walking Dead because that's sort of like a very similar kind of like it's you know it's. You know, my second wife, but I still have family from my first marriage, and now I have new, this new family that doesn't quite love, you know, is, like... Is is Manny the cute kid now a heroin addict? Has no. that show gone yeah. really dark yeah. in its later seasons? Ed, has become, Ed O'Neill has become the governor. <laughs> yeah, it's, I really tuned out for a while. But man, that show went dark <laughs> in a hurry. Good stuff there. Here's what I want to say about it. I, like, I generally liked the show. I really liked the, the pilot. I, I only saw two episodes. I, it's worrisome, I guess. If the small sample size, I really like the first one, and I like the second one less. Mm-hmm. That's not the direction you want to be going in. But second episodes are generally the hardest to make in any show. Um, when we talked about the possibility of a Walking Dead spinoff in the past, we both thought this was you know, probably rich terrain. But the thing that made the most sense would be some kind of anthology show, especially because TV was turning in that direction. Like stories of The Walking Dead rather than... Stories from the world. Yeah, right. And you could do any kind of genre. You could do a cop show. You could do a version of Fargo, essentially. You know, you could do highbrow, lowbrow. You could do a Western. You could do something... Yeah, you could do the West Wing at the time of Walking Dead, whatever you wanted to. Yeah, I really thought, like... Look at us. We sound like Max Landis, just pocket pitching. We're we're pitching. We're pitching here. (laughs) But all of this could have been interesting and cool. And it's worth noting that the reason why a lot of networks passed on The Walking Dead when it was being pitched around isn't because they were they were dum-dums, although <laughs> maybe they feel like it in retrospect, yeah. but because a lot of them thought, well, where's the, where's the long-term storytelling here? Where's the series? Uh-huh. Because long-running TV shows have to have a little bit of hope, and they have to have at least a possibility of a resolution, even if you're not supposed to be thinking of that resolution when you're just pitching the pilot in the first season. Sure. So uh, almost every network passed on it, including FX, which has made a lot of really smart choices in the past. Um, the enormous success has proven, um, you know, the people who... I was going to say Frank Darabont, right? But he was kicked to the curb after the second season. So uh, Robert Kirkman, who made the comic book, and the other people involved in it have been proven right by it. That said, I still don't totally buy the idea that other than enormous ratings, which maybe is all that matters, zombie world storytelling works as a long-term serial. I just don't know that it does. And so it's in many ways, it's incredibly ballsy to go back to the very beginning, to run the tape back. Because the, the reason why I liked the pilot is because I liked, like, as you said, I liked the world. Yeah. I, I kind of liked these characters. I liked the emotional relationships and stakes between them. So most shows, when they introduce you to characters that you like in the first episode, you're like, cool, I look forward to traveling with them on their journey. This show is like, cool, I look forward to watching them ripped apart by monsters with teeth. Right. And it's interesting. I don't know if I want to sign up for that. Yeah. Which is an interesting quandary. I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to push back a little bit about what you said about the idea of the zombie, whether or not something about <clears throat> zombies is, is, is like viable for a long-term entertainment, uh, because I, I happen to really like zombie stories. Uh, but, it, it, you know, whether or not it's, it's viable long-term or not, I mean, I think obviously the success of The Walking Dead, whether or not it's like personally to our tastes all the time it definitely has like kept people's attention yeah it's a ridiculous comment to make considering it's still getting 20 million viewers a week and it's six going into its sixth season right but what, what i was going to say was that you know one of the thing, one of the pieces of zombie culture that i'm sort of what, the biggest fan of is the book world war z 
uh-huh. uh, which if people haven't checked it out, it's much different than the movie. It's uh, it's an oral history, basically, of the zombie like crisis in the world. It starts in you know China and it kind of moves all over the world where it talks to different members of like you know the Israeli Mossad, but then also you know like a general in New York State and then like an aid worker who's living you know all, all these different characters. I have a quick question about it since I never read it. Yeah, um, is it funny? Or is no. it just like no. it's not a funny book? No, I it's like it's it like a global crisis document. It's supposed to be Mel like Brooks a history of a, a global crisis. Yes, Mel Brooks's son wrote it, so yeah, I assumed right. it was a little tongue in cheek. That's yeah. probably unfair. And one of the things that's cool about that book is just the minutia it gets into, like right. when they talk about what they did in Israel to like build a wall, or what they did in upstate New York when they had like a major battle with zombies. I know yeah. you're laughing, but it's like no, it, no, I was it's laughing. Actually, at... it's actually the detail. <laughs> That wait, makes wait. it good. In my defense, I was laughing because I was picturing a zombie outbreak in, like, New Paltz or Rhinebeck or Woodstock. Well, it is in Yonkers. Imagining... The main battle that they have in the book is in Yonkers. Yonkers, and this will, this will come back up later, <laughs> show me a hero. Yonkers could fight. Yeah, right. But if it went to New Paltz, I was thinking about, like, the batik sculpture they made to combat the bad energy of the zombies. You know? But just or, like, zombies running into, a, into New Paltz, and they're like... Um, have you dined with us before? Because exactly. we like to do small plates family style. Are you going to come into my family? Like, let me course out my family for you. I think you should start small with my kids and yeah. my children. Because we have like a sun choke drizzle we like to put on it. But I just wanted <laughs> to make sure that you were, you know, you're, you know, that it's not GMO. <laughs> on ourselves. Yeah, exactly. The zombies walk in and they're only eating like small batch, small batch locals. The point is, is that the, the most interesting part of World War Z is the minutia and the details. It's the fact that, that he that actually games out all these different scenarios for all these different departments of government and the military and even the way people would react and mm-hmm. actually some of the really really difficult choices governments would have to make to contain something like this mm-hmm. which I, I don't want to give away anything of what happens in in the book but we're talking about family and we're like oh i like cliff curtis and kim dickens and i do like cliff curtis and kim dickens but i don't care about this family and i don't really care about rick and the people on walking dead like it's never yeah, really like yeah. everybody experiences zombie crisis in the same way and honestly of course if there was a zombie crisis the real story would be what people did to people i mean i know that you know yeah. but it's actually like nobody has really captured the like let's take this actually seriously and let's go through the permutations of what might happen it's always like you know if stripped bare of society what would society be yes well, I think that's a great point, and it's something that's actually come up in our conversations during Game of Thrones seasons, when the show has threatened to, and occasionally made good on the threat, to delve into the, the yeah. minutiae of religion bank stuff. Yeah. and banking. Um, and it's actually kind of cool, and it actually helps one's, in, one's own personal investment in the show when you realize how much thought is being given to it behind the scenes to every detail. Yes. Um, I would say that one of the things I really liked about the pilot was the way it felt chaotic and scary in a way that it might if it were really happening because these characters were concerned with their own problems you know as you mentioned the families are sort of broken and they're dealing with you know visitation and 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 merging of families and accepting i mean first of all if these kids you sat them down and you showed them danny boyle sunshine they would start calling (laughs) travis dad in a heartbeat for real but 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 small small things and all of them are united by this faith in institutions, mm-hmm. you know, which is, which is, I actually think is a very, 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 very stretched uh, connection to Show Me a Hero. So yeah. we'll get to that. But this bedrock belief that someone is going to come in and fix this. And then, of course, right. who can fix this? Like, if there was something wrong, the authorities would tell us or the authorities would do something yes. about that. Which I is an interesting, interesting sentiment to have in this day and age. 
True. Very true. And there's the paranoia that, that runs through the show. I mean, obviously, it was very much influenced by, like, the bath salts videos of, like, mm-hmm. a guy eating someone else in Miami. Yeah. I mean, how often um, do we look at something that's happening and we're like, oh, truly, it's the end of days. But then you just move on to be like, oh, my gosh, look at that. Russell Westbrook. You know, like... I- my assumption is reversed. My assumption is it's always first. It's the it's the end of days, and it just ends up being you watching Russell Westbrook in the playoffs. Right. But um, I like that part of the pilot. I agree. But the show remains just the, the franchise remains very, very, very uninterested in whys, hows, um, or that specific sort of. Or, the, or at least the level, the collapse on the higher levels of power. Uh, you know, so I'm curious how and where we'll get there on this show because obviously it's it's run the record back and it's going to play it through everything kind of collapsing in a in a different way than what we've seen before. Yeah. The the Walking Dead Mothership show had in that brief first season, I think it ended with a visit to the CDC mm-hmm. in Atlanta, where my man Noah Emmerich was there and feeling pretty bad about himself, but at least he had a good wine cellar. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since then, they just lost all interest in that you know there, there there is no hope there is no plan and that in and of itself made the walking dead very different from all other zombie shows or not shows there are no other zombie shows but no other zombie all other zombie franchises but i still feel it is dramatically limiting I, I i agree with you i would like to see this show happening in wait what was the name of uh, our favorite katherine heigl show from this year for the burn bags Oh man, I forgot. State of play. Yeah, no, state, of, state of emergency. State no, of... but it had a bad pun, and she was state like, "State of affairs, Mistress America." Yeah, state of affairs. <laughs> uh, I want that show to be the Walking Dead show, the Walking Dead colon burn bag. You know, where like they're doing their stuff, and then this is what they see yeah. on their drone cam yeah. from West Africa, and then they have to contain it, and you know, it's paced like that. That would be a radical shift. Um, the other problem with the show going forward, not problem, but. Put a, little, put a little pin in it, and we'll worry about it later, is one of the things that I appreciated most about the pilot was that it was, as you said, it was filmed in Los Angeles, and it looked like it. Mm-hmm. It was set in a place. It was not set in just some woods near a studio <laughs> in Georgia. Um, it was set in a place. Yeah. Week two, production moves to Vancouver. Oh. Uh, Vancouver often stands in for many cities, including especially West Coast cities, in film and TV, it's cheaper to film there. And I have to imagine that when you're dealing with a, a zombie show and you need a lot of extras and you need to remove a lot of life from the frame. Yeah, it's a frame. shame that they couldn't shoot it somewhere where there were a lot of struggling actors. Yeah, well, that's a good point. They would have had a lot of extras. But, you know, that that, that really delightful farmer's market right there by Sunset Junction that yeah. I highly recommend, mostly for the plums. Um <laughs> Let that would be the hard. Boy watch. <laughs> that would be hard to watch. That would be hard to hard to clear out. Never hard to watch. Um, uh, so they moved to Vancouver, but that loses a sort of sense of a place, and then it becomes another story that we've seen before. So we'll see. There's six episodes of it this season. It's already been renewed for 15, and they're basically the goal is they're basically going to stagger them. So they'll, we will almost never be without a Walking Dead show on AMC's air. Before we stop talking about it, I do want to touch on the one thing. I wouldn't necessarily go as far as to say that I was like I like this, but I was definitely. It had my attention, which is your boy Nick, the heroin addict. My man. Yeah. So this is like, what if Taylor Kitsch decided to to do a Ratso Rizzo imitation, like a one-man show of Ratso Rizzo from (laughs) uh, Midnight Cowboy? I got to say, what's this kid's name? The actor? Frank Delane. That guy is making a lot of choices, and I respect his his decision-making. I I don't agree with every one of them, but... It's it's interesting because like very much they they seem very pointedly to be presenting him in the beginning and even at the end with his his gait is very he's got this really pronounced limp that he is almost walking like a zombie, um, 
I mean, that's incredible. I'm just that's saying. Right. He, I, he, he, he himself is kind of a walking dead. Yeah, right. And uh, he is a junkie. He's the son of uh, – he's, he's Kim Dickens' son from a previous relationship, I take it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is very interesting. Like, I mean, like, he has, like, this weird, like – Kind of like New York, like Razzo Rizzo accent looks, and but like also dresses like mid nineties Johnny Depp, kind of. Yeah. Uh, he, what what if I were to tell you a couple things about him? I I would love to hear him. Give me the bullet. What points. if I were to tell you that he comes from a little place called England, and that this is That's uh, interesting. His, his American accent is uh, is adopted. Congratulations so to it him. It could be an extreme sort of. Well, welcome you know, to our shores. <laughs> welcome to the colonies. Well, welcome to Vancouver. <laughs> welcome to Vancouver. What if I were to tell you that he is the son of an actor on a show that we watch with great regularity and attention? Okay, so I one that we he's in Game of Thrones is he Stephen Delane's kid? Yes, he is. Wow, he is King Stannis Baratheon's unburned flesh. <laughs> he is. What a world. He is. I know. Who would have thought that that a successful fifty-eight-year-old actor would have a son who got a part on a successful TV show? What is this world? But that's sort of interesting, right? Yeah, it definitely is. That's crazy. It's King Stannis' son. Yeah. Um, what did you think of his performance? I, I thought he was interesting to watch. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that they. He's got a lot of presence. I'll give him that. I think they generally cast well. I mean, I think they didn't the first time. You know, and I think the people who are left from the first season are there still there for a reason, for the most part, on, yeah. the, on the mothership. I, um, you know, I, I think um, the, Melissa McBride, who plays Carol, I like to was, imagine the, the like now the set of Walking Dead, kind of like working at Amazon, <laughs> like Andrew exactly Lincoln right. is like putting in feedback about his co-star. He's totally, he's totally snitching <laughs> on everyone. Uh, yeah, because it, that's actually a pretty good parallel. Because Sarah they could, Jean Kelly is not is not not innovating enough. <laughs> they could definitely find someone else to package your water shoes slash be eaten in a forest outside of Georgia. You know, that's not hard. Yeah, but they, you know, but like uh, Melissa McBride, who plays Carol on The Walking Dead, was playing one sort of part in the first season, and they saw that she was really good. And she's, I think, in terms of performance, she's the real star of that show going through the seasons. Like that. She's turned Carol into a really good character and is a really strong performer, and it's a very specific type of performer, capable of doing a lot of things. And so Kim Dickens certainly is that, too. She can plausibly play someone who is tough enough to not die in the first 20 minutes of this thing, but also a talented enough actor in terms of internal life that you can feel how awful this is. So I think they cast well. I think think he's good. I think the the daughter is pretty good, too. I was disappointed to see... um, uh, you know that's that's Randy, by the way, from The Wire. I know, man. Wagstaff's up in the building. He's up there. Um, I I I wish that he was part of the main cast. I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, but you know, it it it'll be interesting to see. They they it, it, I, I always find it really fascinating when people are operating from a position of strength. People mm-hmm. are going to watch the show no matter what. And they could do anything. Sure, it has The Walking Dead in the title, so they could have told any It'll, story. It'd be interesting to see what what kind of uh, because I feel I feel like The Walking Dead the, and the the plot line of The Walking Dead to some extent is a tractor beam on F- Fear the Walking Dead, and it's yeah. like how much will they be able to resist the urge or the or the fan urge 
for them to kind of catch up a little bit, you know? I mean, there might be some real... Because I think that they are dealing with an interesting narrative question, which is how do you tell a compelling story about something that people already know the nominal end of, which is that this did not work out for the city of Los Angeles. Well, we didn't know well, the one thing we don't know, and in many ways, it made The Walking Dead more watchable. Even though you know, then when they started hacking people to death with machetes, it became maybe less watchable. But we didn't actually have to deal with the cost of ending the world, mm-hmm. and that was a huge unforced error that the strain made. I mean, one of the reasons why I mean, I wrote this in the piece. I feel like they chose to do this with fear, basically to do donuts on the lawn of FX, because the strain is like, we're going to show you the end of the world. And meanwhile, like day nine of a vampire apocalypse, the mayor's having press conferences. We're going to show you the end of the world, but first another World War II flashback. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It is the most tonally frustrating, inconsistent show. And this at least has a firm handle on the reins of the apocalypse. I think that. But but it's asking a lot of the audience to show them a world and then destroy it. Yeah. And I don't think, and I don't know of much in the other show, even when I've liked it, that has shown me that these people have the storytelling chops to pull that off in a balanced way, but we'll see. Well, we're talking about demanding things from our audiences. Mm. So I think that's as good as time as any to move to show me a hero. And we could yeah. just talk briefly about this because, um, you know, I guess we, it would be better to talk more about it as a six-hour statement than here we are. Yeah, I... You know, I watched the whole thing before writing about it, and I was very glad that I did. Yeah, I, I uh, so I've, I'm, 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 I'm caught up. I'm on. They, they put up the other two last night, um, so it's been four in. We got two more next week, correct? That's right. Um, I have to hand it to to to, to David Simon and to HBO for putting something like this out because I do think that it's strangely like. If you watch the first episode and there's the Bruce Springsteen's playing and it's setting up all the major characters and you yeah. think, well, this is obvi- – I see where this is going. I see I see where the- we're all going to come together here in a moment or something. And it it really is – he is just very dedicated to telling the story in his, his way. And in some ways I think this is even more subversive or – progressive in the way that it is trying to tell this story than even Treme was. And it kind of reminds me of Generation Kill, where you kind of keep waiting for something to happen. Um, and obviously, if you're familiar with the story of Nick Wasisko, you you have an idea of what eventually happens. Yes. But it's... The, his 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 dedication to telling stories... When you say he, you're talking about David Simon. David Simon. Simon. When, you, when, when you watch his shows, the his dedication to telling these stories that actually, sometimes <laughs> frustratingly, feel like real life... Yes, is so admirable, and I am not going to lie and say that I have not been bored at times while watching this show. But I have never not had respect for it, and there are is at least five times per episode that I am like blown away by the humanity I see on display. I totally agree with you. I would say that one of the reasons why I like Show Me a Hero, I definitely like it more than Treme, and uh, I enjoy it more than Generation Kill. And, you know, The Wire is The Wire. We're never going to, I'm not going to say anything critical about The Wire. But what I really liked about this show, three things. One, that it was based on facts and a true story. So it gave them a blueprint to tell a story within. Mm-hmm. Two, it's limited, um, you know, to six hours. So it can it can tell a beginning, middle, and end to all these characters. Uh, but three, I really, really like Paul Haggis's direction, which I was very surprised about. Um, you know, he gets a bad rap for making the movie crash. Yeah. Um, but I think that his, it, I mean, it, it's always weird to anthropomorphize a camera, but I feel like his camera is very, very curious. 
you know, it's not judgmental. I think the thing about Crash was always how heavy-handed it was. The camera in this is always looking for something. You know, it. He, I read an interview with that he did with Alan Sepinwall that I really recommend people reading, and he talks about how in crowd scenes, and there are many crowd scenes, yeah. whether they're protesters or city council meetings, he intentionally lost the camera in the crowd, so people would suddenly stand in front of it, or arms would go in front of it, and you feel thrown into a very unsettled situation. Um, but yet, he is also a Oscar award-winning Hollywood filmmaker, so he frames things in ways that are more... I don't know, let's say cinematic. Yeah. It's not verite. It's not like you're going to watch this tough shot and it's going to last a long time. It's it's prettier, let's say, than some of the stuff that Simon does. Um, and he worked with movie stars this time. You know, and I don't mean Peter Riegert coming off of Local Hero 35 years ago. Right. <laughs> and now dressing like the desolation of smog. Or, I mean, or John Bernthal coming off of Fury. <laughs> no, but hey, Bernthal, I was really psyched to see, speaking of Walking Dead, Shane from The Walking Dead here uh, on the show playing an NAACP lawyer, and it really helped buttress my long simmering <laughs> theory that every Jewish American actor has a Woody Allen imitation, just waiting, I just know. waiting. Because the thing about Bernthal is he's playing the Punisher, right, in the next season of Daredevil. Yes, but let me tell you something about our man John Bernthal. He also went to a Quaker school like we did. Did he really? He went to Sidwell Friends in D.C. No way. So I feel like maybe we can echolocate ourselves in his experience better I mean, than I, we thought. I already echolocated myself after <laughs> seeing Fury with him just like spitting all over himself and machine gunning people. Yeah. Well, let me say that that's more your, your experience. You know, the Quaker school you went to, mine yeah. was a little more staid. So <laughs> definitely the NAACP lawyer was more fitting. Um, but Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac is one of our best working actors. Yep. We definitely, we talk a lot about Born Legacy, one of our favorite films. Oscar Isaac's small role in that, he blows our man Renner off the screen in that. I know. He is good in everything he does, and he's different in everything he does. And he's so committed to this character being a human being Mm -hmm. while still having the charisma of a movie star. And this is something we rarely see, where he can be a character actor, essentially, but still hold our attention. So all those things are great tools that I think Simon hasn't had to work with so often in the past. Um... I, I think that it's worth noting, sorry, this is the end of my monologue here, to what you were saying all the way back at the beginning about how he resists sort of uh, traditional, dramatic, fictional storytelling. Sure. You know, think about the title of the piece, and this is also the title of the, the book that it was based on, the nonfiction book. It comes from the Fitzgerald quote, show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy. And what's so fascinating about it is the first two hours are thrilling because it's like local politics and there's Springsteen on the stereo and a young guy in love and, you know, he's he's going to do something here. But... Facts get in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nick Wasisco, who was mayor of Yonkers during a tumultuous time and the youngest mayor of America, walked into this long-fought, f- um, vitriolic battle over the integration of public housing. And he wasn't a hero. No. He did the he right thing. He wasn't a crusader, yeah. This was not like he a wasn't philosophical, a crusader. yeah. He did the right thing, at ultimately at a lot of cost. And the longer these six hours go, the more you realize how political decisions matter in small bore in people's lives, but then in the long arc of time in the lives of cities and the lives of societies. And, yeah, that and, is, it, and only it, David Simon can tell that story. And it, it's not unlike basically every Simon story, the, the story that he seems most interested in. And it's a, it's a story that has relevance today, just like it did in the eighties, yes. just like it did in new Orleans, just like it does in Baltimore, which is the war on, uh, that institutions wage against individuals. And, you know, you kind of sit there and you're seeing, um, you know, like Carmen's story, or, or I think that the, the that one, one, one character is named Carla, and mm-hmm. uh, you see these people, and they start out, and pretty much they're all fresh faced and 
moving into adulthood or trying to make their way in the world or whatever. And by episode three or four, a lot of them are just defeated. They're defeated by bureaucracy and red tape. They're defeated by drugs. They're defeated by um, immigration. They're defeated by all these situations that they didn't ask for that make it hard to be like a person with dignity in the world. And I think the show illustrates that very well, but I would only push back on using the word defeated because what, you know, you're, you and the viewers who are watching at home are two-thirds of the way through the show. And defeat, I think, to Simon is just as much of a fiction like as a victory. construct. A construct, yeah. exactly. People have hardships. Sure. And they continue yeah, to Yeah, I'm live, not saying, like, do you win don't. or lose life. Yeah, for no, sure. No, no, but, but, but that's one of the beauties of the show is that it has the expansiveness and the generosity to show us the totality of yeah. it. And I think it was, you know, for people who haven't watched a lot of Simon in the past, it was a little jarring in the beginning because you see Oscar Isaac on the posters and he's a movie star. And from the very beginning, there are a number of supporting characters who have equal screen time. And we don't even know how they interact until hour three or hour four. Um, it's a battle over building public housing and those houses don't get built till well into the series. We yeah. don't even know who's going to move into and them. And the time jumps in this show are a little bit uh, disorienting at they're, times. They're subtle. Like, you know, it'll be one episode and then the next episode there's a re-election for something that was – so he's been in office for two years over the course of two episodes pretty much. Yeah, his whole term. Yeah. Um, I would say that it's just – I you know, it, what it is is you're watching it and, and you just kind of like you're seeing these other storylines and you keep thinking in terms of A plot, B plot. And yeah. these plots are going to be united either fight and they are united thematically. And what he is, is he's a really, he is an expert at juxtaposition, but those juxtapositions don't necessarily have central narrative relevance to one another. No, but I was impressed particularly in this, in this show, in this series, how he, and, and we're giving David Simon all the credit. He co-wrote it with Bill Zorzi, who worked mm-hmm. on the wire and also worked with him at the Baltimore sun many years ago. This is another example of the the freedom and the challenge uh, for screenwriters, which is you could tell any story. You can it's, Where you start, where you end matters. Mm-hmm. The, the way you wrap your arms around it matters. You know, and, and in the past few weeks when we've talked about shows that have failed or haven't quite gotten it right, it's often – it's not because they chose the wrong story. It's because they chose the wrong way into the story. Like, like Halt and Catch Fire botched its first season for that reason. Um, they have all of these real life stories to tell, and yeah. I think they chose them very, very well. Yeah, uh, I don't know how many years it took them to write this, this or get it off the ground. I know they've been working on it for a while, but I think it's been really impressive. I think it's one of my favorite things I've seen this year. Well, we'll talk about it a little bit more next week when it wraps up. Uh, it will be in second position to another show that is wrapping up this week, which is Mr. Robot. <laughs> yes, that's true. We're, we'll be talking about that. Uh, hey, before we move on, let's take a break in today's podcast to talk about our sponsor, SeatGeek. It's the best way for fans to save money on sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek aggregates tickets from every major ticket site online and puts them all in one place to make comparison shopping for tickets easy. It's basically like Kayak.com for sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek also has technology called DealScore that calculates what every ticket in the building is worth. Good deals are represented as big green dots on the map, and bad deals are shown as small red dots. So it's easy to see at a glance which tickets will save you the most money. For a limited time only, use promo code HOLLYWOOD in the SeatGeek app or website and get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, to redeem your promo code and save $20, use HOLLYWOOD, like the name of our podcast, to save on your first SeatGeek purchase today. Andy, I wanted to talk, so we wanted to talk, last night, um, New York Magazine Vulture put up there uh, a long-form interview with Quentin Tarantino conducted by Lane Brown, used to work at Grantland, and our friend, a, our buddy, and 
it's a fantastic interview as most you know as you, as you would expect from yeah. from uh quentin tarantino and he just had so many like burners in there like namely like who yeah. the f- reads tv criticism amen to that man <laughs> uh, <laughs> i can't i can't blame him for that but one thing that i wanted to talk about I, there's so many things in there but like in terms of like 90s nostalgia and whether or not you can make art that's relevant in the time you're making ha, it or ha, whether how, how about him skipping out of the movie theater after seeing matrix reloaded singing uh s dot carter you yeah. must try harder yeah that was a good one but uh i was sort of fascinated by the way he started to talk about his characters at one point. And I guess this is sort of like a larger conversation about Tarantino in general, but it's always interesting. We we come across so many very forceful auteur figures these days. So he was talking about um, the characters and how those are going to be his like real legacy. Um, in the he says in the beginning, maybe I cared more about finding, like resurrecting a cool a actor. A Travolta situation or a Robert um, Forster or Jack, you know, Pam But Gruen now I care more about the characters. Right. And that uh, he was doing some Nightline interview, which he has some funny words about Nightline. And uh, it was with DiCaprio and Jamie Foxx around the time of Django. And he was like, I think he made a comment to the to the interviewer where he said something along the lines of, I like these guys, but I love my characters. Yeah. And um, it was funny. And just to read him in general i've always thought of him as someone who is i i guess let me ask put this as a question are you emotionally involved in quentin tarantino movies no right <laughs> taking Easy. out your misgivings about maybe some of like the yeah yeah like the, humor the or cynicism he had, yeah yeah Do, would you still say that's the case you mean have i become well he he writes memorable characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I got a lo- I got dinged a lot when I said this last time, but I really still like Jackie Brown because that's in many ways the slowest of his movies. And he's sure, the, you know, the, he he sinks in deeper to the characters, and there's like a a sadness and a weariness to it. Um, I think a lot of his movies he create he's playing with archetypes, you know, and he's playing with fantasies, whether it, often revenge fantasies. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I don't know what to, I don't quite know how to phrase it because if you see the bride slash someone or if you see Django get his revenge like that's cool and that is an emotional investment in that coolness and in yes. that release yes. and in the way they look and the way they pose and the way they handle themselves that's emotion also but in terms of living or dying with their internal lives like not me personally not so much and not very often no right I think I I cuz it was it was an interesting challenge to my own <clears throat> beliefs about his work because i tend to remember performances more than characters and sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference do you know what i mean like sometimes like i remember fassbender and christoph waltz and melanie Me too. from that's Angel all i remember Bastards, from that movie but not i it was just a very interesting thing a proprietary thing for him to say which i i totally understand why he did it but i was just kind of curious whether or not you had any and, thoughts on it and, and i think he says this in the piece i mean there aren't as there are probably few people alive who love actors as much as he does mm-hmm. um and when you see and yet he writes these very janky rivers of prose for them that not everyone can handle and when you see someone like fassbender or waltz in inglorious bastards deliver these lines these long raging rivers of verbiage but with as if they're you know just having a cocktail on the roof of a skyscraper like as if they're just completely unruffled by it it's just flowing from them naturally that's an amazing thing and i bet he would think that's pretty cool compliment too but i agree with you about that my favorite thing 
One of my okay, I had a couple. My favorite, favorite thing things. was the fact that the last two TV shows he's watched from start to end is yeah. Justified and How I Bet Your Mother. <laughs> but how about he watches every episode of the Newsroom three times? Yes, that suggests like we've heard some weird things about his personal preferences in the past. Like I feel like that suggests. Yeah, but that like, makes so much sense masochism. because a guy like that who writes dialogue the way he does, yeah. you know, it's part of it would probably be just like the rhythms of like the way people talk. That's probably right. Yeah, but I would say that the Newsroom. Um, my own, other, you know, all other opinions about that as its, its success or failure aside, I don't really believe that Sorkin wrote characters on that show. He wrote mouthpieces for his language. Well, so so I, that that you know could be a criticism lobbed at Tarantino as well. I I really liked in the piece how, I mean, I like interviews when people talk about themselves and they lay out stakes, you know, and they sure. they have skin in the game. And he's basically like, nobody is coming at me except maybe David O. Russell. Yeah, you know, or he really likes. Um, well, I love the fact that Lane p- posited that Spielberg and Lucas are, like, worried for the future of cinema. Yeah. He's like, sure, but not for the bullshit reasons that they laid out. <laughs> yeah, well, here's another thing. Like, I, I, I really also appreciate people who take the long view. And he was he in no way is that worried about our superhero Yeah, I mean, he has a very – like, in a, in a good year, it's hard to make a top ten. And we yeah. only really deserve one masterpiece a year anyway. You know, unless That's probably it's a right. year. Um, he also cares about pure filmmaking – in a way that I don't know if I'll ever relate to it. And I don't, and I mean that as a, not even a compliment. It's just separate from me. Like mm-hmm. when he could see, he can see a movie that would leave me feeling cold, but appreciate the, the, the technician behind it. You know what I mean? Um, he sees films from a director's perspective and from purely a visual perspective often. Right. Uh, so he also in this piece talks about how he lived through the eighties and for big budget entertainment, that was, he thinks it was the worst decade in history. Yeah. Now, Maybe I mean is that is, is is the fact that the eighties were the worst decade for movies ever is that accepted at this point? Um, I just think are, I mean the the those in, independent film movement that sprung up towards the like mid to late eighties and it really exploded in the like Jarmusch 80s. started in like eighty eighty five eighty six yeah and John Sales and and people like that right I think that that was very much I mean that's sort of the funny thing about the the sort of and he comments on this where he's just like people who are like the death of the the small budget movie and and he kind of says he's just like well there are like mid budget small budget movies basically like ethers all of Kate Blanchett's movies <laughs> he does and he's he's kind of right like, yeah I mean yeah. I can't name a single Kate Blanchett movie can you Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull there's like a bunch of Elizabeths right like a bunch of Elizabeths I mean one that I'm gonna be like I gotta I gotta keep that that Elizabeth Kate Blanchett shelf Blue, Blue really Jasmine what Blue Jasmine I didn't like Blue Jasmine that much she was good though, but um, the other thing that he said that I thought was interesting is he talks. He, this is this is not something he he said originally. A lot of people have said this that the Western is like the most malleable American art form. Yeah, and that you, you can, can always tell the story impose of, your, the morality of the time into you the can, Western. You but, can tell the story of any yeah. decade. Yeah, yeah. So that was interesting. Um, I guess the equivalent you should be able to say is that the superhero movie is that of this decade, right? You should be able to say that. I guess so. I, it, I would kind of I the thing is is that I feel like superhero movies swing on a pendulum that's almost entirely market based, whereas westerns mm-hmm. are. I, and I don't I don't mean that because my preference might be for westerns over superhero movies, but I always feel like Dark Knight is a reaction to this. Marvel is a reaction to Dark Knight. DC yeah. is a reaction to Marvel. It'll go cartoony, then it'll go re- grounded in realism, and then cartoony, and it's just swinging back and forth to reflect things like that. Uh, I don't one, really find. I mean, like, do you think that there's anything when you watch like Winter Soldier where you're like, ah, yes, yes. Our, our, well, our current state of affairs? 
well, a little bit in a clumsy way. I, mean, I, I would say because they say, say so. Yeah, they they definitely and also in um, in Dark Knight too. There's there's the whole thing with the surveillance, right? Yeah. And when, when Morgan Freeman events a computer that can listen to every yeah. phone call. Let me tell you something. All you people out there saying the Dark Knight is, but he's like, you can't you, use it because like a power. You forget the third act. Oh my god! Right? You remember Heath Ledger walking away from the hospital dressed like a nurse and being like, "That is dope." And yeah. you forget the part where Batman basically becomes the CIA, and it's just like, "Cool, I'm listening to your phone and the, calls, and, and, and I'm and on a boat." The end is like, I'm ha- I'm like, I'm gonna blow up a bunch of like buses full of people, and he's like, "No, Don't it's boats, do it. right?" Yeah, it's like he's like, chaos, don't do right? it, and, and all the people on the boat are like, I guess we recognize our common humanity now. Yeah, yeah, it's a little rough. But <laughs> the other difference, though, the reason why the Western is so malleable is because it is so archetypal that you're like, well, okay, there's a town, there's a sheriff, there's there's a mysterious guy coming into the town. Yeah, and they're e- it's easier to subvert Done. that. Yeah, and you start that, and any one of those people can play any different kinds of roles and interact in any different kind of way. Um, the problem with the superhero archetype is that the archetype is so rigid it's we have to do another origin story with some sort of alien power slash spider bite you know we have to do we have to reboot the machine every time as opposed to just immediately starting in a world that we recognize even though at this point we recognize it so i guess the stuff about the sort of the stuff about surveillance and responsibility can be very clumsy i think that winter soldier was probably the best at it and there is something kind of interesting about the way Marvel's using Captain America in that movie and then in Civil War, which is coming next year, which is essentially about the government saying, okay, you've got to regulate, we have to regulate people with powers, and you would think that Captain America would be like, you know, yes, sir, Uncle Sam, but he becomes the outlaw. I have to jump so, in here to just do a quick Renner update. So, yeah, I was hoping you would. I was uh, setting you up for that. Renner was at something, like some event. <laughs> a, a housewarming? I don't think, a, I, a, it doesn't a, matter a that I don't know, I don't think Renner knew where he was because it was like some toasting? comics thing. And they were like, somebody, I guess, baited him into, or like tricked him into saying which side yeah. he's on in Civil War. Yeah. And but his response was like, yeah, I'm on Cap Iron Man side or whatever, right? What, Whatever. He's on some side and he's just yeah. like, I guess <laughs> that's, the <side. laughs> that's the side they put me on. <laughs> and the only other news of him being in the movie is that like he was out drinking with Daniel Bruhl in Germany. <laughs> He's like, have you, you about, just like, have you thought about investing in Los Angeles real estate? Seriously. He's like, so, okay, so tell me about Frankfurt. <laughs> what's the, we're, what's the up and, we're the what's developing the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, anyway, I'm just saying that maybe that sort of thing about superhero movies, and we always get back into talking about it, but maybe that's best taken with a wide lens where you don't actually have to talk about it having seen it or yeah. the box office. You can see like, okay, well, this is how it succeeded or failed. Right. Um, but honestly, I, I have to say, maybe this is just being contrarian. When Tarantino talks in the piece about how there were a couple moments, maybe when his career was a little bit less hot, uh, which weirdly, I didn't even realize this till Lane wrote this. I hadn't paid enough attention that Inglorious Bastards and Django were his highest grossing yeah, films and that of all time. Things were looking a little career. bleak after Grindhouse that he was kind right. of like at, at, at odds about what to do. And he was yeah. considering taking on work for hire. Um, right. And like he was going to do a remake of Westworld that eventually is now going to be a TV show on HBO. He almost did Man from Uncle, which is, just came out for some reason. Um, I kind of want to see him do that. Mm-hmm. Is that weird? Like, Hateful Eight, which is his new movie and why he's doing press, it's just like, it's it's like his repertory company sitting in a barn, right? Like, that's Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, 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 I just refuse to ever underestimate him because every time Fair. he makes a movie that I'm just like, I'm just like, you're, you're basically my favorite director. I mean, yeah. it, it almost lives in a, like, like we were just saying about The Wire. It's just like his movies exist in a different set of rules for me, like. Yeah, um, and I have favorites among them, but they're all my babies. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, 
Yeah, your your papa, Papa Q. <laughs> um, Andy, let's uh, wrap up um, with a little Can bit less of some, an egghead kind of thing and talk Woo! about Beach Sling. So this is a band that uh, Stephen Hyden, Grantland's own, mentioned yeah. to me like a couple weeks back. Oh, thank you, Stephen Hyden. And uh, I think he is writing about them this week, not to, to let the horse out of the barn. Um, but they are a band from Philadelphia. So already a plus. So we're into them. And it made up, the front man is, is a former member of the pop punk band Weston, which anybody approaching 40 may have heard of, um, if they ever went the, to. You know, you know this, the summer we met, summer 96, mm-hmm. like, a lot of dudes at the borders where I work were wearing Weston t-shirts that summer. Really? Like, that was, that was, a, that was a thing, yeah. Okay. People, they were like, they were like Philly's Blink-181, you know okay. what I mean? Like, they weren't quite, quite at <laughs> 182 level. But they have the record coming out, do you know what the, the name of the album is? The things we do to find their titles are awesome and long. The things we Here, do I'll to find people. You riff for a second. I'll find it. I'll look it, look it up. I just want to say, Chris, we talk about music a lot, you know, and we every so often we were both we used to work in music, and we we'll talk about a record or a big release that's just come out that we're excited about or we're interested in or we just dropped it in our laps and we haven't quite figured out a take on it yet, but the truth is the way the way music lives in my life, and I don't know if it's the same way that it lives in your life, but generally like i'll be really hyped to talk to you about the kendrick lamar record or the d'angelo record but i'm gonna spend most of my time like just listening to the clips like road to the casket drops mixtape from 2008 yeah, you and, like paul what you like. and paul simon's hearts road and bones on repeat like not even cancel <laughs> casket drops just like the play clothes era yeah like the play clothes era you like what happened like, to play clothes man where's that at that's who made this beach line t-shirt good, good they're, they're diversifying yeah um so what i'm saying is music exists on two tracks you know there's the track where you're engaging in it in terms of cultural there's the pop cultural conversation then there's what's actually on your headphones and what's in your heart beach slang <laughs> took the blue route yeah to my heart so does because this is the band that i always want to listen to that i didn't know they existed yet so let's let's sort of like give people a hint i mean i maybe i'll have joe drop a little track in here or some, some oh. track oh yeah let's do that but joe drop a track um so beach slang kind of sounds a little bit like tim era replacements yeah Check. Um, really good Ryan Adams, like rock Ryan Adams. A little bit the spirit of like Alien Lanes, Guided by Voices yeah. in there. Uh, but basically someone who was in a punk band in Philly was listening to the Smiths and Britpop when you and I were and maybe couldn't figure out how to make the two sound alike until he got a little life experience and broke up a band. Right. And it's one of those groups, and people have compared them a lot to uh, um, Japan Droids in mm-hmm. that... Yeah, it's glory rock. Yeah, it's glory rock. Like singing a lot. Like the most used words in beach slang songs are "live," "die," tonight, "guitar," "young," "young," "tonight." Yeah. <laughs> it, there's a lot of lyrics about like kissing a microphone and singing in a basement with my best friends. All things you and I do on a regular basis. <laughs> I'm about to just French this microphone in front of me I'm right gonna, now. I'm, I'm so excited. Put on some play clothes after this. <laughs> we all we all celebrate differently, but. It is so well done and so emotionally rich and exuberant. And it's like discovering this group. They Because he basically broke up Weston, did this band, made two EPs that are both available on Spotify. And we'll make a playlist. Um, I'm on Spotify. It is my name. And I'll, I'll share it publicly. Like, Damn, you need the, you, you want the Spotify followers. I got to get, get them. Get I got to get, my, get <laughs> my numbers up. <laughs> but both of them are great. The record, though, on Polyvinyl next the month. The Zane Lowe of Spotify. <laughs> just called. Yeah. <laughs> what if you're like the last dude on title just being like, I am the tastemaker. Yeah, I'm like, my beat's point four. 
just what is, way what is it called? Well, like untitled? You just have followers? You think, or do you have like do, do you have do you have surfers of your title? Untitled? Yeah. Do you have anything untitled? I I used I title for a month. Did you? What, what happened? I moved on. Oh, uh, Beach Lang's new album, which is coming out, I think, in October, is called The Things We Do to Find People Who Feel Like Us. You can find their first single from the album, Bad Art and Weirdo Ideas, can I just is, say, is available on most streaming services. That's the best name of anything ever. Because <laughs> Bad Art and Weirdo Ideas? The new single is called Bad Art and Weirdo Ideas, which is basically what everyone's 20 should be if they have the luxury, <laughs> right? And I love the fact that this dude is probably our age. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's singing about something that most people celebrate in their 20s, but he's singing at it from a distance. Yeah, and you know? there's an I interview really I saw that. he did with... Uh... Oh, it's coming in! Joe! Look at this! Look at this! King Tubby on the decks! Zane Lowe can't do this! He <laughs> literally can Oh, he can <laughs> Sorry. I'm still untitled. Mmm. Are we talking over it, or are we just listening? Yeah, I this mean, like, people, people just get the vibe, right? It's a good vibe. Um... Yeah, that's all I got. I got on, on this. That's all you got. I just think it's like it's it's really good stuff, and it's been a really good know. time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to sound real, real old here, but it's been a really good time for some bands. I really like that Royal Headache record a lot, uh-huh. and I like the new Gun outfit, which is coming soon. And I, I love like this these, Beachling record. I like these names. I I, I it's interesting <laughs> I like to these talk. names. <laughs> I like band names I'm I, out. When, they, they, when they show up in my title playlist. Peace out, Grail Marcus. I like no, these I'm names. Just, <laughs> <laughs> I judge books by their covers. And I judge band by their names. Um, no, it's just interesting because we. This is something we were talking. We talk about it in other mediums a lot. Basically, the and, and we talked about this. I can't believe I'm going to bring this all the way back to True Detective season two. But one of the oh reasons why you and I were holding on to hope for a long time was because Pizzolatto appeared to be playing with archetypes that really yeah. registered for us. That was another Quentin Tarantino thing. Was when he was just like, "Yo, True Detective is stupid." <laughs> His review, uh, he might not like TV criticism, but that's because his review of True Detective 2 was much better than mine. <laughs> he was much just like, better. I watched the first episode of the first season, yeah. and it sucked, and it lo- I saw like the trailer for the yeah. second season, and I was just like, nah. <laughs> no, he was like, it's good actors looking miserable. Hard pass. <laughs> He's right. But I feel like that's a special category of talent, or maybe even genius, that that is often worth championing and celebrating, because it's not... Being like a, I'm changing, I'm just changing the rule book and doing my own thing type of idiosyncratic genius, yeah. you know. It's not like like Radiohead making Kid A or, or what Kendrick is doing. It's not out so outside the box, you have to go to it. But it's someone playing, and this is what Tarantino does, taking the things that you love and putting them together in an order that surprises you and mm-hmm. just engages you instantly. And that's what this band is doing. And, you know, a lot of the bands that we've been mentioning have been able to do that. So Andy's going to make a Spotify playlist because he he needs the followers <laughs> on Spotify. Um, you can listen to Beach Slang yeah. through that. We'll send, he'll tweet that out. Um, and we'll be back next week. First, last show for me before my vacation. But a big um, one because we got the Mr. Robot finale. We got Mr. Robot finale. We got Show Me a Hero finale. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about stuff. All right, man. We're going to talk a little more about stuff. That's how we get listeners going week to week. Great job, Baranski! (laughs) New York City, the 1960s. Prostitution, illegal gambling, and after-hour clubs were a part of the scene. It was called Fun City since everyone was having a good time and no one was getting hurt. The gangsters were making money and the cops were taking a cut. Enter the Public Morals Division. They were the city's landlords. If you wanted to be in business, you had to pay the rent. But the younger generation of mobsters was coming of age, and these guys wanted more money, more power, more respect. The line that separated the good guys from the bad was about to snap. 
It's New York like you've never seen it and a story that's never been told. From creator Edward Burns, don't miss the series premiere of TNT's Public Morals, Tuesday, August 25th at 10, 9 central, only on TNT. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.